everybody, and welcome to the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast, where come rain, shine, or anything in between, we're here to deliver to you the Kansas State sporting news that you so love. I'm Ace Edwards, right alongside Connor Baltazor. And welcome to the cat fight, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to what is, without a doubt, the game I am most excited for on the schedule, and probably the game that I've that I've been most excited for since I've been a student here at K-State. That is up against my childhood team. It is your Kansas State Wildcats against the Missouri Tigers. So before we dive straight into the grand scouting report, I would like to take a moment to remind you that this episode is brought to you by the official Aggieville Alley Cats merch store, where if you use the code KOFFACATS, that's K-O-F-F-A-C-A-T-S, at the official Aggieville Alley Cats merch store, you can get $5 off any order, which includes the official staff-approved Doom Tang Clown, oh God, Doom Tang Clan shirt, play Sandstorm Cowards, as well as many other designs. So once again, please be sure to visit the official Aggieville Alley Cats merch store and use the code KOFFACATS, K-O-F-F-A-C-A-T-S, to get $5 off of your purchase. So let's get right off with their 2021 season and their 2021 stats. I'll start off with the offensive side of the ball as well as their general record. Now, last year, they were a 6-7 and seven team with a loss to Army in their bowl game with a 3-5 and five conference record, 2,342 rushing yards at a clip of 5 yards per attempt, 22 rushing touchdowns, 3,036 passing yards at a clip of 6.6 repeating per attempt with a 66% completion percentage, 19 passing touchdowns to 11 interceptions, a third down percentage of 42.05, which was 41st in FBS, and then a red zone percentage of 65% in touchdowns and 90% in total scores, which was a tie for 18th in FBS, 19 sacks allowed with a total of 29.08 points per game and 378.4. Now, if you look at all those numbers, the first thing that you'll probably notice is how much the passing yards outpace the rushing yards. And there are several reasons for that, and a lot of them carry over into this season. But before we talk about that, Connor has you for defensive numbers. Yeah, defensively, they gave up three 33.85 points per game for a total of 440 points against them over the season, 2,688 passing yards against them, 25 passing touchdowns against them, 2,955 rushing yards against them, and 32 rushing touchdowns. Their third down percentage defensively was 43.37%, which was 101st in the FBS. And red zone percentage, they gave up a touchdown 76% of the time and a score 93% of the time. That's 127th in the FBS. They got 11 interceptions, 11 fumbles, 18 sacks as a defense at a turnover differential of four. Yeah, so the defense last year was not great. It made strides from where it was in 2020, but that's not saying much. But it wasn't a great defense last year. But with all that said, it's no, we have to take a look at who they're returning from last year's team because they still have a lot of talent from last year. In terms of who specifically is returning, they're returning their leading receiver in Towski Doves, 
a wide receiver, as well as their sack leader in Isaiah McGuire, their leader in passes, defense, and interceptions, Chris Abrams-Drain, and then Martez Manuel, who's their second leading tackler. They're adding two big names that are really important as well, and that is former four-star linebacker commit from Florida, Tyron Hopper, transferred to the University of Missouri. And then an old friend, one that K-State has actually seen and played against before, that is running back Nathaniel Pete from Stanford. We played them last year in the opening game, which seems so, so long ago. <laughs> yeah, it has been a very long time, uh, it feels like, since that Stanford game. Uh, bygone era, you might say. Yeah. They, they did lose a few pieces, though, from that 2021 team. Uh, their starting quarterback, Connor Basilak, he transferred to Indiana. Um, safety, Sean Robinson, he's now at K-State. He was injured this past week. Might play this weekend, not really sure. Question. Makai uh, Wingo, uh, defensive lineman, he transferred to LSU. Tyler Beatty was their leading rusher, and he was drafted to the NFL. Blaze Aldridge, uh, linebacker, he graduated. He was their leading tackler. Caleb Evans, uh, he was drafted to the Vikings. He was a defensive back, and he was second on the team in passes uh, defense. And they also, uh, so they lose here, Steve Wilkes. Yeah, Steve uh, Wilkes. DC. Yeah. Yep, he, they lose him to a job with the Carolina Panthers. Now, Steve Wilkes is an interesting story in and of himself because he was the one-year Arizona head coach with the year with Josh Rosen before Cliff Kingsbury was hired. Then he took a job at MU. Now he's back at Carolina. More you know. What a guy. What a guy. But in terms of their 2022 schedule, they've only had one game this year, obviously, just like K-State. It was against Louisiana Tech, where they ended up winning 52-24. to And the stats from that game puts them at 1-0. and Excuse me, 323 rushing yards, 6.4 per attempt, 235 passing. Excuse me again. 235 passing yards at a clip of 7.83. One passing touchdown to one interception. Five rushing touchdowns. A 50% third down conversion rate on offense. A 35% third down conversion rate on defense. Four sacks. And then a red zone scoring percentage technically of 100%. Louisiana Tech had one trip. And they scored once. (laughs) And then the red zone scoring percentage on offense was 62.5% scoring a touchdown and then 75% scoring at all. So the first game in terms of stats, you're not going to get too much from it. But now here comes the meat and potatoes of the scouting report, because we went through the first game and charted just about every meaningful snap. So We stopped charting it about midway through the fourth quarter when the backup quarterback came in. We charted their offensive personnel, the formations they used, the running game concepts they used, whether it was a play-action pass. Um, I'll tell you this, don't expect this. (laughs) Because it was, don't expect as in-depth in the future because we kind of went in a little bit over our heads. Well, don't get me wrong. A few of these things will return. Like we would like to bring back formation numbers and personnel, but outside of that, well, just enjoy what we have right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So in terms of just the broad overview of the offense, 
the one thing that there are three things in particular that we would like to point out. And the first is they can run a little bit of tempo if they get a look that they particularly enjoy. They're not going to run a NASCAR offense, but yeah, they are willing to hurry up and run a little bit of no huddle if they get you in a defensive look that they know they can exploit. But even when they run tempo, that really limits their offense because it's quite clear that that's not meant to be their forte. So even if they're running from the same formation, uh, let's just say I saw them run the exact same running play four downs in a row. I saw them run the exact same duo slash inside zone. Technically, I think it's inside zone, but the distinction between inside zone and duo is inside zone is angry duo. That's the best way I can explain it. (laughs) But there are the final thing to note in general is that their offense is not good at staying on the field and sustaining drives. There is a non-zero chance that their defense is absolutely exhausted. And there's like 10, 10 to 12 more defensive snaps and offensive snaps. Just that just because of how bad they are at staying on the field. But of course, now Connor has you for personnel formations and concepts. Uh, yeah, personnel, uh, we never saw them in 32, 22, or 21, which, I mean, a lot of offenses nowadays are getting away from that. Anyways, 12 personnel, they get into 22% of the time, uh, 14 snaps total. Um, and generally, you're going to see it with twin tight ends to the same side, uh, at least most of the time. Um, they spend most of their time in 11 personnel, 49.1%, 29% of the, or 29 of their snaps, I should say. So just under half the time, they're running out of 11 personnel, but they do have some versatility uh, with that as well. Um, 10 personnel, 23.7% of the time, uh, 15 snaps. And they had three snaps with extra linemen, uh, just 5.2%. So that rounds out personnel formations. They went under center one time. And other than that, it was all going to be various formations of shotgun, or that just be gun 29% of the time. They're on the a lot of pistol, uh, 51.6% of the time. Then they went empty 12.9% of the time. They ran a little bit of wildcat, uh, just under 5% of the time. Uh, that was, I think, all with Luther Burden yeah, as well. And uh, they just want to get the ball in his hands because he's very, very athletic. Um, and then uh, more specific receiver formations, uh, they ran trips uh, about 26% of the time, twins 42% of the time, bunch 17.7% of the time. And then something else, uh, 14.6% of the time. That wasn't literally anything that was else. Literally yeah. anything else. But then moving into concepts, uh, they had 30, 35 running game snaps, 31 passing game snaps. So they stayed uh, fairly balanced there. Granted, it was pretty easy because they were in control for most of the second half, really. Uh, they're in outside zone 43% of the time. Uh, inside zone, 5.7% of the time. Uh, gap, uh, 25.7% of the time with one quarterback sneak. 11.4% of the time ran sweep and 14.3% they ran option. Passing game, only 16% of the time they ran play action, straight drop, 48.5% of the time. RPO, 16% of the time. And screens, 13% of the time. And they had a motion across the formation, 35.5% of the time. So that rounds out the personnel formations and concepts. Uh, what are some notable takeaways here, Ace? The Probably the biggest takeaway is just, well, in, 
to put it into terms that aren't just numbers, because I really like the numbers, but the numbers provide grander context rather than should be taken alone. They're very much a team that is trying to embrace more what you would consider NFL principles. They're trying to run the outside zone based offense, except instead of under center, they're going to run it out of pistol, which is why they run the majority of the time at a pistol. If if you see them running pistol, there's like a 99% chance that they're going to run outside zone. And well, it's not 99, obviously we provided the numbers, but <laughs> there's a very high chance that they're going to be running outside zone. The thing is that they don't run the counter punch, which is the bootleg off of that, or at least they didn't against Louisiana tech, but this is very much a team that wants to spread you out, get linemen on the move, get players out in space and try to make you make a mental error. And that kind of explains why they run a pretty decent amount of RPOs, pretty decent amount of screens, their straight dropbacks most of the time are going to be trying to go for deep shots, which this offense does want to do, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And the other thing that I wanted to point out was that they don't utilize short motion, which is odd, especially considering the type of offense that Drinkwitz wants to run, which it's clear he wants to kind of make it as easy as possible. So he doesn't utilize short motion. He just uses across the formation motion, which is, more used for gadget plays. I mean, Kleiman mentioned it earlier. This is a multiple team in that they run a lot of different play calling concepts. They're not strictly a college offense. They're not strictly a pro style offense. They're an offense that implements a lot of concepts in both. Whether they do that particularly well, we'll get into in a minute. But <laughs> you took offense. I'll take defense if that is fine. I'll allow it. All right. So the first thing that I wanted to note before we get into the formation numbers and concepts is the new defensive coordinator that the University of Missouri has, and that is former safeties coach Blake Baker. Blake Baker's had an interesting career path, and I I promise I have a reason for pointing this out. So obviously he's replacing Steve Wilkes. He has six years or seven six and a half, we'll say, of defensive coordinator experience. Four at Louisiana Tech, two at Miami, and once as a co-defensive coordinator at LSU. Interestingly, despite having the number four defense in terms of yards and yards per game, first and third down percentage, ninth in sacks, and tied for seventh in interceptions in 2019 at Miami, he was stripped of defensive play-calling duties by then-head coach Manny Diaz January of 2021. Which seems odd, given that he not only coached a top 10 defense in just about every meaningful measurement in 2019, but he was a legitimately good defensive coordinator at Louisiana Tech as well, coaching Jalen Ferguson to be a third round draft pick and coaching that defense to be one of the best in CUSA and leading them to two CUSA championships. So... How exactly he ended up as a linebackers coach at LSU immediately after this confuses me. Which, by the way, he was on staff when we smoked them at the Texas Bowl. Then he was asked to move to D.C. one month at Missouri. I say all of this because the defense is probably the part that concerns me the most. And Blake Baker is a big part of that because of the defensive scheming he was able to do at places like Miami and Louisiana Tech. 
even if it was under Manny Diaz, you don't become a top 10 defensive coordinator on accident. <laughs> you, that just doesn't happen. Do you, before I get into anything else, do you have any, any thoughts on that for how he, I know this isn't like not necessarily how he fell so far, but any thoughts about just those numbers in particular, I guess. Uh, Yeah, it's definitely concerning, but also inconsistent because it's weird that he was on that LSU staff when we kind of destroyed them uh, because that defense really was just all out of whack, even though they just, yeah, I know they were shorthanded or whatever, but they still had some really good players available. And I don't know. The whole situation is just very, very strange. We have a very, very small sample size as well with him at Missouri uh, with, I would say, a an interesting result. Um, a lot of talent, ob- like a lot of obvious natural talent on that defense. But I mean, we can get into it more with the uh, with the numbers. But I think there's more than meets the eye with the defense. because there's, there's a lot of different ways to look at it. Yeah, exactly. So going into their alignment numbers, the first thing we're going to go over is their safety alignment. They started off in two high safety coverages or two high safety shells, 55.4% of the time, and single high coverages, 44.6% of the time. The thing about their two high to single high looks is you would think that them running too high would mean they run a lot of cover five, which is just cover two man, or you know cover four, cover two. Uh, no. No, because they act like a tumbleweed and they just keep rolling one of their safeties. Most of the time, it's Carly's that they roll into a hook flat zone. They play a lot of cover three, which we'll get into in a little bit. But in terms of their corner alignment, 52.3% of the time, they don't press any of their corners. 38.5% of the time, they press one of them, which is most of the time the isolated receiver. And then only 9.2% of the time do they have more than one, which is two or more people pressing. Which, again, sort of matches what you'll see later in how they play their coverages. But in terms of defensive line, this is the part where they're truly multiple. I believe that Kleiman probably more meant the defense was multiple, though the offense does technically fit the description as well. They run three down fronts 58.5% of the time, four down fronts 41.5% of the time. In terms of three down fronts, they run odd 10.8% of the time, a tight front 24.6% of the time. The distinction is tight has a defensive end moved in slightly slightly more uh, to the center side. At least that's how I was taught about it. Again, could be wrong, but at least that's what I've been taught. They run a bear front. Technically, it's a bear front. It's just Two linebackers or a safety walked up on the line to make it a five-man surface 7.7% of the time. They run a stack front, which is literally just three down linemen and everyone else playing in space 10.8% of the time. And then most interestingly, they run mug, which is linebackers in either the A's or B gaps 3.1% of the time, which I didn't expect them to show that if they were going to do it. Because why would you waste that against Louisiana Tech? (laughs) Like that seems that seems like an odd choice. Yeah, uh, that that is a really odd choice to to do that. I wonder why. Yeah, I don't know. But in in terms of four down fronts, they only switch. It was forty one point five percent of the time total, and they would really switch off. It was about even between under and over fronts. So sixteen point nine percent under of fronts, eighty eighteen point five percent over fronts. So 
Yeah, their the defensive line truly is multiple in that they can have just about anyone play anywhere. Which coverages is next up. They only played straight man coverage 24.6% of the time and zone coverages 75.4% of the time. And to my eyes, the predominant coverage that they played was cover three, which was 56% of the time. Now, again, I don't have access to all 22. It could be cover six and I could be wrong. It could be anything else. I don't, we don't have access to all 22. We wish we did. That'd be awesome. That'd be really cool. That'd be great. I would love love doing it. I would absolutely adore that. But from what we can tell, they mostly run a lot of cover three. 16.4% of the time they run match. And then 3% of the time it's something else. Again, not really discernible without all 22. I've been talking for a minute. I'll let you talk about blitzes. (laughs) Yeah, Blitzes, uh, they don't blitz 66.2% of the time and they're blitzing about a third of the time. So pretty much two thirds don't blitz, one third blitz. Uh, when they are blitzing, uh, they go slot blitz uh, 9.2% of the time, linebacker blitz 24.6% of the time, which they got kind of creative with some of their blitz designs uh, as well that led to uh, an interception, at least partially. Yeah. Uh, and then they brought outside corner pressure 1.5% of the time. I'd imagine they did that one time then. Yeah, and, once. <laughs> yeah. Then, uh, yeah, they're, they're very elaborate with uh how they uh send pressure and when uh the moment i was referencing was uh sometime in the first quarter uh they uh dropped uh one of their linebackers who was lined up off the edge um who kind of went on a blitz and just bailed out uh went to the middle of the field tipped a ball and was picked off by a trailing uh slot corner who really got bailed out because he was getting burned and <laughs> then uh i don't know just it was a really it was a clever way there's obviously more more going on there because they blitzed another backer um but and i'm not describing it super well but they they there's a lot of thought that goes in uh to how they bring pressure uh specifically um it is interesting to see uh we're lucky that we do have a mostly experienced offensive line that should be able to hopefully uh identify uh a lot of stuff like that but then again, you know, you're not going to be perfect and you can't expect all five guys to every single time get it. At least uh, I don't think it's realistic to expect that, but they will probably bring a variety of pressure. They probably want to put Adrian Martinez under pressure. So but that that's all the blitz numbers. Yeah. So do you have any any overarching thoughts about the defense? Because I I have a few. And again, I'll just let you go first. Um. Yeah, it was interesting to watch them. I, I was able to get through uh, about a half. And uh, there were definitely a few times that it felt like they were getting bailed by Louisiana Tech not being a great team. But there were other times where they re- looked really good, uh, especially uh, uh, the the further up in the defense, the closer to the line that you get in the defense, the better generally, it seemed like, with the exception of... Uh, uh, the uh, the linebacker whose name I'm forgetting, Tyron Tyron something, yeah, Tyron Hopper. Hopper, yeah, yeah, he's really really good. Um, but their defensive line, uh, very Simon Sound, uh, like what they do. Um, and then I like their linebackers. Their safeties are okay. Their outside corners are eh. Um, it'll be interesting to see that matchup because I feel like we as a team match up pretty well. Uh, with this defense, kind of at every level. 
Uh, I think our offensive line is a good match for their defensive line and a front six, seven, whatever you want to say. Uh, and then similarly, our wide receivers probably aren't going to get smothered by their corners because it's just going to be kind of a mid-off on the, <laughs> the outside. Yeah. But, but I, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see what wins out here um, between these two groups. But it's definitely the stronger of the two main units uh, at Mizzou is the defense. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's my exact thoughts. I this is going to be a well-coached defense. This isn't, at least from what I've seen, this isn't going to be a defense where you're just going to be able to just either bomb it deep. You're not, this isn't the cakewalk defense that it was last year. Because although, yes, Steve Wilkes is coaching in the NFL right now, I believe that Blake Baker is probably a better college defensive coordinator than he is. And I'm not just saying that because of the stats at Miami or the stats at Louisiana Tech. Both are definitely compelling to my case that Blake Baker is a good DC, but it's just seeing the the strides that MU made from this year to from last year to this year is it, it's interesting to me, and I think it's a defense that's only going to get better. So I'm really glad that we catch them early, but that doesn't mean that I think it's going to their defense is going to be an easy nut to crack. In fact, I think quite the opposite. But let's just get right into the positional general takeaways, starting off with the offensive side of the ball, and Connor has you for QB1 for MU. Yeah, so Brady Cook was named QB1 for Mizzou uh, about a month-ish ago. Yeah. Um, I'm over uh transfer from Southern Miss, Jack Abraham, who was like in his millionth year of college football. Was and it, uh, Was it Southern Miss or was it Mississippi State? It was one of the two. I, th- I, I thought it was Southern Miss. Maybe it was a both, honestly. He may but, have been at both at some point. I don't know. Um, but Brady Cook... Um, last week he went 18 and 27, 201 yards, one touchdown, one pick, uh, had a long pass at 29, had an 81.3 PFF grade. Uh, his one interception was on a drop pass. So, I mean, yeah, it's a pick, but was it, and his mobility is pretty decent. Uh, seven rushes for 61 yards and a touchdown. Uh, he ran some read option, uh, looked pretty competent. Part of it was the Louisiana tech defense just, absolutely losing their minds the second that a read option happened and just not tracking the ball whatsoever. Yeah. And, but, but he still has to run uh, to make it work and he runs pretty well. Um, his bigness, his biggest weakness is probably his arm strength and his deep ball. Uh, his arm strength is lacking. He doesn't get a ton of zip on most of his passes. Uh, he had several deep balls in the Louisiana tech game that were underthrown, which deep passing generally is a weakness across the board for this Missouri team, at least down the sidelines it was. Yeah. Um, his pocket awareness is pretty good. Uh, he's not Carson Camp, uh, but he he's still fine. He's yeah, passable. I don't really think that Carson Camp might be the most pocket-aware quarterback we see all year. <laughs> yeah, and we Which still got him four times. So, <laughs> yeah, it's phenomenal. Um, uh, Cook will force passes at times. Um, and at some time that's going to bite him. Uh, I mean, that's, that's part of the condition of being a young quarterback. Cause I believe he's a redshirt freshman. 
if I'm not mistaken. He's younger. And really? Yeah, he no, he's not younger as in he's younger than a redshirt freshman. I mean, he's on he's an underclassman. He's uh, younger okay. in the grand scheme of college football. That, my bad. I was gonna say because he definitely played last year, at least a little bit. No, but... he played he played three games last year, including closing out the bowl game against Army. Right. So yeah, he's he's a fine quarterback, but he's still young. Got a lot of room to grow. Um, what I saw from him, he was okay. Uh, the play calling, granted, was not complimentary to him at times, uh, at least in terms of uh, improving his statistics. Uh, it was, the play calling was interesting at times. I'll put it like that. And uh, but I don't know. I I think he's all right. Um, not incredible, but he's somebody that I'm not going to fear a ton going into this game. He's somebody that could be really good uh, in the future, but right now he's got a lot of work to do. Yeah. And granted, there's also pieces around him that need to develop as well. Yeah. This is a very young team, but going past the quarterbacks, you also talk about the two leading rushers. Technically, I think, I don't think either of them started the season as running back one, but their running back one was hurt. I think that was Elijah strong. But I'm going to be honest, I think that these two probably have already taken that spot from him. And that's number 20, Cody Schrader, and number eight, old friend Nathaniel Pete. Let's first talk about Cody Schrader. He enters 17 for 70, one touchdown and one reception for negative eight yards. A 71.7% PFF grade with 71.4% running grade. He's fine. He's all right. He has okay vision. He's okay speed. His... Probably his defining trait is his ability to break the weaker tackles. Like you're not going to arm tackle Cody Schrader. It's just not going to work. And his his contact balance is pretty solid. So if you hit him on one leg, there's a solid chance that he's able to keep going for at least a couple more yards. And of the two of these backs, he's definitely the more rough and tumble one. He's the one who's more likely to finish his run by trying to truck you rather than just falling forward. But that being said, I think Nathaniel Pete's the better of the two. He's the transfer from Stanford. He only got eight carries last Saturday, or I guess it was a Thursday game. He enters eight for 72, one touchdown, two receptions for 18 yards, an 80.4 PFF grade. And he has the same skill set as he had at Stanford. He was a quicker and shiftier back with a lot of receiving upside and good vision and pretty good one cut ability, like one cut and gone. But the his biggest weakness is probably his... His ability to press blocks, but at that point, that's kind of splitting hairs for what you want running backs to do, because only elite running backs know how to press box blocks as well as you would want. But yeah, Nathaniel Pete and Cody Schrader are both legitimately all right running backs. They're not anything to write home about. They're not superstars. They're not Deuce Vaughn, but they're serviceable. And it's a downgrade from last year. Not too much of one. Yeah, um, both are fine. Yeah, that's uh, that, like they're going to be serviceable. They're going to get the job done yeah. when they need a few yards. But moving on to receiver, uh, the three main names here are Dominic Lovett, Luther Burden and Barrett Bannister. Luther Burden's probably the one that everybody recognizes, given that he's the five star true freshman that was just brought in. Um, although he's got a long way to go, but we'll start with Lovett. Um, has six catches for 76 yards and one rushing attempt for 18 yards thus far. Uh, had a 73.4 PFF grade, 68.3 uh, pass offense uh, grade. 
He's got really good speed. His hands are okay. Very shifty. Uh, he's got good open field vision and makes good cuts. His route running is pretty solid as well, at least in its suddenness. Uh, so love it. He is a guy that exists. And he's pretty yeah. good. Yeah, he's good. Um, Burden is an interesting case because I he's obviously got the highest potential of anybody in this, given that he's the five-star and he's probably the most athletic guy on the team. Um, but right now, he's really not ready to be a true receiver. He's he's more he truly is just an athlete. Like he's there to get the ball in his hands and go be athletic, basically. Um, so and you can tell, like, because they send them back in Wildcats, take some direct snaps, and go make people miss and get like 10 yards like really easily. But he also clearly doesn't have uh the ball skills quite yet uh to be a true receiver. Uh he sent on a few go routes, and if he's covered well, he really didn't really seem to know what to do um in those cases uh, he really struggled to get his hands up i uh, really struggled to just get airborne in those cases when there was a, a defensive pressure on him to get to make the catch but when he's got the ball in his hands though he is a, a true threat um he's a home run threat really uh he's uh he is a little bit undersized i think he's like five foot eleven uh but he he's still built pretty well uh, like, i think he's close to 200 pounds if not more um he's honestly he's built like a running back uh, but he's still technically a receiver, at least. But, I mean, he's a lot of fun to watch uh, with the ball in his hand. Uh, and he's going to be difficult to stop at times. So a lot of a lot of stopping burden is just not letting him get behind you. And if you can prevent that from happening, you're probably going to be fine, uh, yeah. at least uh, when he doesn't have the ball in his hands. Yeah, the, the main thing I'll say about Luther Burden is he – to put it into comparison, he's a worse receiver than Xavier Worthy was when we faced him last year, but he's a more ridiculous athlete than Xavier Worthy, which that's insane. <laughs> like he, yeah. I truly believe that, the, and I truly believe that Luther Burden, the moment he steps onto the field at Bill Snyder Family Stadium, he's he's the best athlete on the field from a pure athletic standpoint. He's he's going to be. That doesn't mean he's uncoverable because, you know, he's still a true freshman and he doesn't know how to play receiver yet. (laughs) He, that sounds harsh, but he doesn't. There's so much to his, his technical game that's lacking. So I will, I can see a world where they just send him in motion to keep him away from press because if Julius gets hands on him, the rep is over for him. If Echo gets hands on him, the rep is over for him. So I can see them using him as a slot option, just use him in a lot of motion. Didn't mean to interrupt you there, but yeah. No, not at all. I mean, like there's a lot to say about Luther Burden because he's uh he's the big name right now for the offense, even if he hasn't produced yet. Um, because yeah, I mean three catches for 17 yards and a touchdown, which the receiving touchdown kind of receiving air quotes touchdown uh then three rushing attempts for 26 yards and a touchdown uh he's scored a couple times but again he still isn't quite there yet they're just finding creative ways to get the ball in his hand so a lot of k-state's defensive game plan needs to be erasing him and just not letting him get into open space because if that does happen it's going to be really difficult to stop him but there there are a couple other receivers on this team barrett banister uh Three catches for 43 yards, 
with a long of 18. The only note on him is insert superlatives about slot receivers here. So, Ace, if you'd like to take this away, you're more than welcome to. <laughs> Jim Rat, high IQ guy. First one in, last one out. Slot receiver. Yeah, that's really all I have to say. I'll, I'll, I'll stop you there before you continue. But, <laughs> um, he, he is one of the slot receivers of all time. Yeah. Is basically Barrett Bannister. Um, and that is really all there is to say about him. He's solid. He's fine. Yeah. Uh, if you let him get open, he will probably catch the ball because, as we know, all slot receivers just have really great hands. And they're good at catching. Yep. Um, uh, one of the receiver, uh, Toski Dove, uh, has the best hands on the team, but has not really produced so far this year. He was the leading receiver last year. Um, according to my understanding, but yeah, he was he uh yet to produce at a massive level this year, so uh, not listed as of yet, but he may make his uh statistical debut against the Cats, but we shall see. Yeah, I think he had like one catch against Louisiana Tech, but they didn't feel it worth noting. But I'll take tight ends and offensive line, or I'll take tight ends, and then the left side of the offensive line. So we start off with the tight end, which is Tyler Stevens, number 80. They have another tight end. I think his number is 44. He's the blocking tight end. That's really all I can say about him. But Tyler Stevens enters the contest two of 33, and he plays a really good mixture of both flexed out as a wide receiver and as an inline tight end. And the other things to note is that he is absolutely massive. He is six foot six, 248 pounds. He's basically just a really, he's a basketball player who put on a lot of weight, who is now playing tight end. And he had a really bad fumble in the red zone. So ball security might be a concern for him. But other than that, he's just a really massive human being. And I would say that's his defining trait. In terms of offensive line, from top to bottom, this unit is very experienced. In fact, they have exactly one person who is younger than a redshirt senior, and that is their center. But in terms of their left side of the line, their starting left tackle is Javon Foster, number 76, a redshirt senior. He had a PFF grade of 77.1, 88.4 pass block, and a 70 run blocking grade. He has a really bad habit of letting the play come to him rather than attacking the defender, which sounds counterintuitive in pass box snaps, but you still kind of want to attack them a little bit. And it's also kind of funny because on the backside of zone runs, he just kind of falls at the defender's feet. Like it's not even really a cut block like you would think of traditionally. He just sort of like falls on their toes. It's kind of funny to watch. That's probably what he's coached to do. It's not ineffective. It's just funny. Outside of that, his kick slide is a little bit slow for left tackles, but he makes it work. And this is just something I thought was weird. It doesn't affect his game at all. He has this really weird habit of sticking out his right arm, like straight out, like he's checking for a rusher or feeling from a rush from that angle, even though he knows that there's no one that's going to be there. He just kind of does it. I think it's probably something he was coached to do when he was younger and just never broke the habit. It doesn't hurt him. It doesn't help him. I mean, imagine if you got on the inside shoulder of him on a rush, that arm's probably not going to be able to recover fast enough. So maybe attack inside paging Felix to bull rush him. But yeah, I left tackle. He's fine. He's good. 
Their left guard is a little bit more questionable. Xavier Delgado, number 72, another redshirt senior. He had a 62.2 PFF grade, a 72.7 pass block, 59.4 run block. He's good at working his way up to the second level on zone runs, and that's that, that's about where the positives to his game end. He's fine, but his pass blocking reps, I understand why he gets such a high grade on PFF, but looking at the film, you understand why, because most of the time he's literally pawning it off on someone else. Like he pawns it off on the center a lot, pawns it off on the tackle a lot, which, you know, technically it's a win. It's a win for him, but, and you could argue that's the, the interior offensive line's job, but if left on one-on-ones, he's probably not going to be too great. But you have the center to the right tackle. Yeah, as Ace mentioned, the center, Connor Tallison, he is the only non-senior on this team. He's a retro freshman, so he's actually very, very young. At a 64.6% or 64.6 PFF grade, a 79.4% pass block grade, and a 60.1% uh, run block grade. A uh, couple notes about him. He stands straight up very quickly. Uh, he doesn't get his uh, hips sunk to a very good level when he's pass blocking. Um, but he does keep his head up and use his angles to his advantage. And he also has the benefit of being right next to Xavier Delgado. So whenever, you know, Xavier has somebody on pass block, then he just gets him for free. And, yeah, pretty much. And also he is a redshirt freshman. So, I mean, there, there's a reason that he's playing as young as he is probably. So uh, keep an eye on him, which part of he may be partially inexperienced, but there's also going to be stuff that he is just going to be really naturally talented at being this young. Like there's yeah. a, uh, that's probably why he's on the field. Uh, moving forward, we have another Connor, uh, right guard Connor Wood. He's a grad transfer, uh, 65.6 PFF grade, a 52.7 pass blocking grade, and a 71.2 run block. Uh, easy to see the disparity in pass and run block from the left to the right, almost like they were doing something there. <laughs> um, he and he's a good lateral mover in the running game, and that is where the uh notes really end on him. He is a run block first right guard. Stop me if you've heard that before, and <laughs> he certainly exists, and that's about all there is to say about him. Yeah. Then a right tackle, they have Zeke Powell, who's the grad transfer as well. As a 75.4 PFF grade, 52.4 grade in pass block, 78.4 run block. Uh, not a good pass blocker, as his PFF grade indicates there. Um, it is brutal, in fact. Uh, like Casey Leviston, 2020 bad. And yeah, no, no, no. Like, it, it, yeah, it's that bad. It's because, yeah, that was borderline unwatchable at times. Uh, but he uh, uh not great probably again why is it right tackle but uh yeah that's the offensive line uh for missouri kind of a mixed bag here um experienced and veteran unit but not this uh like not particularly stalwart yeah i think not, we could say they're not world beaters they're a solid bunch with a few pieces that averages out to average which yeah they're bigger than South Dakota's offensive line, and they're better than them, but we faced better offensive lines and handled them. I think that Con- – I keep looking at there, – there are three Connors on my screen right now, so I see Connor first. But <sighs> I the Baylor offensive line that we faced last year and did really well against would blow this 
offensive line out of the water. And I think we're better than we were last year. Yeah, understandable, uh, especially with Felix last week, uh, getting double teamed the majority of his snaps, which granted he didn't run that many snaps and really just did not matter. Uh, anyways, he probably should have had more than his one sack. Uh, only got the one really just because Carson Camp has the like eyes in the back of his head. Yeah. Uh, and he was handling those double teams pretty easy. Yep. So now we can move on to the defensive side of the ball, and we'll start with their defensive line. I'll cover the defensive ends. You can cover the defensive tackles, which basically means, well, you can figure it out. <laughs> their one line is their defensive ends in number 18, Trajan Jeffcoat, and number nine, Isaiah McGuire. And their defensive tackles are number six, Darius Robinson, and number zero, Jaden Jernigan. And let's start off with Trajan Jeffcoat, number 18. He enters the contest with a single tackle, and I'm convinced that he killed someone at PFF's dog because they hate him for no good reason. They gave him a 40.7 grade with 35.2 in run defense and 50, excuse me again, 58.2 pass rush. Uh, he's not that bad. He's not great, but he's not that bad. Most of the time he's, he's, he is the the hybrid piece. Both of the defensive ends are more hybrid pieces. They're asked to play as stand-up edge rushers or hand-in-dirt edge rushers, defensive ends. And they're fine at both. As a force player in the run game, this is probably where his run defense grade got nuked from orbit. Because if he's asked to play force on like an outside run, no, mm -mm, he's not doing it. He tries his damnedest, but he's not going to do it. <laughs> he's trying his absolute best. But uh, if Gilly happens to be on a sweep, I could see a world where Gilly just assassinates him. But as a pass rusher, he has a pretty good arm under rip move. If the key to beat him, the key if you're the tackle is you have to beat him to the edge. He's not going to beat you inside, but he will try to speed rush you. That's the majority of his game is trying to outspeed you. And it does vary where he lines up. So he'll see a little bit of KT and he'll see a little bit of Christian Duffy. I've seen enough from both of them that I'm not particularly worried about Trajan Jeffcoat. Isaiah McGuire is definitely the better of the two ends. Number nine, 75.5 PFF grade, a 69 nice run defense grade, a 71 pass rush grade. And if Jeffcoat leaves to be a bit desired as a force player, McGuire is not necessarily two steps, but a step below that. Both of their defensive ends are not very good at setting the edge at their position. And although Jeffcoat was a hybrid player, McGuire is the true, he's the best hybrid lineman that they have. And he even dropped into coverage a little bit, which scared me. Granted, he got toasted by Louisiana Tech's tight end when he did it, but it still kind of scared me because it wasn't like he was disgustingly out of position. He just got bodied by like someone who's six, seven, which that could have happened to anybody. <laughs> that is true. It really could have happened to anyone. But yeah. So again, similar to Jeff Coat, he has an absolutely disgusting Rick rip move. But the difference is, is that McGuire can still beat you to the inside because he can rip to the inside. He prefers to rip to the outside. So don't overset either way. Try to stay neutral as best as you can and just try to mirror him the best you can because his plan is not to go through you. It's to go around you. So you could probably run him out of the play if you really want to. But again, 
That's their defensive end room and now defensive tackles. Yeah, getting to defensive tackles, you have Darius Robinson. Uh, he's a team captain. He's got one tackle so far. Uh, PFF grade of 75.4, 64.1 run defense, 76.7 in the pass rush. Uh, he's pretty solid at attacking gaps in the run game. Rather than trying to go through his man, he's got a pretty solid initial punch straight off the line. Basically, what this is telling me is that he's fairly assignment sound yeah. uh, in his uh, run defense. And then he's a pretty solid pass rusher as well. So all around pretty decent defensive tackle to have there in the middle. Uh, and then the other guy they have is Jaden Jernigan. He's got two tackles and a sack. PFF grade, 65.4, pretty abysmal 48.6 run defense grade, but 67.5 in the pass rush. It's hard to take these PFF numbers as dogma after just one game. Yeah. Uh, but it's really the best indication that we have thus far. Um, but yeah, Jernigan, uh, the inferior of the two, probably, although stats are superior. Um, and then Robinson, I mean, being team captain, obviously a leader on the defensive side of the ball. Um, but I don't know. There, There's more to take from the ends, I'd say. I personally preferred McGuire. If I were a Mizzou fan, I'd like McGuire a lot. He's got really good length and speed off the edge. Um, but defensive tackles, I don't have a ton to say about them other than allegedly one of them is double zero, unless we've listed that incorrectly. But yeah, uh, it's actually just zero. It's not double zero. That is an absolute shame. I was really hoping it was double zero, but yeah. could happen to anyone. Um, um, I like Jerrigan. I like Robinson. Both are solid, um, but it'll be interesting to see how uh, the interior O-line uh, matches up with them because we are going to be seeing a little bit of shuffling, unfortunately, there on that front this week. But Yeah. But you can, we're both going to end up covering the first player in the linebacker room, but I'll let you introduce him because, spoiler alert, he's the best player on their defense. Yeah, Tyron Hopper, he's number eight. Uh, he's the will backer. He is really, really, really good. Uh, six tackles so far, two TFLs, a sack and a pick. He's got a 90.2 on PFF, 91.7 coverage rating on PFF as well. Incredible for a linebacker, 71.3 on defense, 80.2 in the tackling department he is an absolute monster uh, his quickness is phenomenal and he kind of like speed wise athletic wise moves around like a big safety uh zone instincts and ability to read qb's eyes absolutely excellent uh he's very he's a good pass rusher um then his pursuit angles uh and the run game are pretty good as well uh, he can fake a rush and move into the whole zone really quickly we saw a really good example of that uh where he caused an interception uh, where he was actually lined up on the edge and then uh, uh, faked a rush, dropped into his zone, deflected a ball, caused an interception pretty early on in the game. Um, I don't think it ended up turning into anything for Missouri, um, but uh, he he showcases abilities more than once. Um, he's an incredible athlete and uh, probably going to be a thorn in the side of uh, Colin Klein when he's doing some uh, game planning because the the middle field probably won't be quite as open with uh, Tyron Hopper there um, yeah. covering. Yeah, I if the rest of if Tyron Hopper was not a part of this defense, it would be a completely different defense. I would not be nearly as worried about this defense as I am if it were not for the existence of Tyron Hopper, just because 
he is basically like having a second star player. He's the, the biggest comparison that I can come up with, and I know that this is an imperfect comparison because they play completely different positions, but you know how much Jalen Petrie meant to the Baylor defense last year? That's what Tyron Hopper does for this defense. He can do just about anything on the field. And that's what makes him such a difficult chess piece to figure out and scheme for. Because normally when you're scheming, you're looking for weaknesses. You're looking for a player to exploit. In this case, you're going to have to look pretty much anywhere else. Because Tyron Hopper, the moment that he steps onto the field, and the moment he's on the field, whatever assignment he's going to do, he's going to do it well. Even if he's, you know, pass rushing, which is his weakest skill set, he's not bad at it. He's not bad at it by any means, but his scariest ability is his ability in coverage and his ability to make you think he's coming on a blitz. He plays with your head more than just as much as he plays on the field. And part of me thinks that's coaching because again, I have a lot of faith in Blake Baker, but yeah, Tyron Hopper, if any, if this game turns into a defensive slugfest, for MU, it is almost exclusively because Tyron Hopper is putting the team on his back. Yeah, yeah he, he's he's an incredible player. Yeah. Um, but we can move on to uh, Chad Bailey, uh, the Mike backer. Uh, also a pretty good player in his own right. Uh, 80.6 uh, PFF grade, 73.7 run defense grade, 80.1 tackling, 75.4 in coverage. He is a serviceable, uh, true Mike. Uh, he uh, sifts with the run game uh, pretty well, though he doesn't necessarily block shed uh, the absolute best. But again, he is a true Mike and a really intelligent player, so he's going to sniff out trick plays and play action pretty easily. Uh, watching the game, uh, I think there was once where I thought that he kind of bit kind of hard on play action, but never again uh, after that. And I think it was the first play action of the game which I mean, somebody can just chop up to being the first game of the year and just like need to get in the right headspace. But I mean, yeah, not fun to have to deal with uh, this uh, front six. Um, Going to be a, a tall task for the offensive line, but K-State's got a really good offensive line. So uh, they have that in their back pocket there at least. Um, but yeah, that is, that is the notes on linebackers. If you have anything else to add is. Nope. No, nothing more to add. I would say the third linebackers are without a doubt the best room on this defense, and they're very, very good. Next up is the defensive secondary, and their corners are number 14, Chris Abrams-Drain, and number two, Ennis Rakestraw Jr., with number 19, Jamarian Wayne, in rotation with them as a true freshman, or maybe it's a redshirt freshman, but as a freshman. In terms of safeties, there's number one, Jalen Carlies and Joseph Charleston, number 28, with Martez Manuel, the returning star defender from last year, at the star slash jack slash cash slash money slash whatever you want to call it position. Now, Cowboy, if you're Oklahoma State, it, it's the third safety. It's the third safety that does literally everything. But I'll let you decide. Do you want corners or safeties? I'll take corners here. Okay. Then I'll take safeties. 
We'll start with their more traditional strong safety. That would be Jason Jalen Carley's number one. Enters the contest with one interception and five tackles, 69.3 PFF grades, 76.1 run defense, 83.8 tackling, and 65.4 in coverage. He's definitely their more traditional strong safety. He's going to play in the box a little bit more. He's going to be the one that's going to drop into that hook zone. And he's really, really, really good at tackling and really, really good in the run game, which kind of makes him that prototypical, really good box safety. So whenever they're doing their coverage rolls to the cover three look, or if he just starts down in the box, he's someone you have to account for in the running game. And again, he's not exactly going to be taking on offensive linemen, but he's clever in how he manipulates himself and his positioning to get some really good tackles and make the stop before it turns into a big problem. Joseph Charleston is their more traditional free safety if you're putting into if you're putting everyone into a box. He enters with four tackles and one interception, including a pick six. The pick six was off a tip, but outside of that, it's 62.8 PFF grades, 68.8 run defense, and then 60.4 in coverage. He's definitely their weakest safety but he's not awful as a true center fielder. And in the LA Tech game, it's probably imperfect because, you know, they were getting pressure enough to where he was never really tested as that true middle field safety or as a deep safety at all. And then third and finally is their star defender, Martez Manuel. He enters with four tackles, three of them being for loss, a 72.7 PFF grade, 81.8 in run defense, 80.0 in tackling, 59.2 in pass rush, and 65.5 in coverage. The first thing you'll notice about him is he has a lot of different hats he wears. He can be a flat defender in zone. He can be a blitzer off the edge. He can even play a little bit of middle field safety if he has to. And he does all of these fine. He does them all pretty well. The The biggest complaint is that he... Uh, he does not hide it when he's coming off of the edge on a blitz. So if you're if Adrian Martinez is even looking up at all, which God, I hope he does, he can immediately call him out. It's like, hey, he's blitzing, you know, slide the protection that way. Actually, no, it's the center's job to call protection in this offense. So the center needs to keep his eyes up and say, hey, you know, blitz coming off the right side, slide protect to the right. Though outside of that, he is their best tackler, and Carly's does give them a run for their money. But, you know, their their safeties aren't bad. Their weakest is definitely Charleston, but Martez Manuel as well as Jalen Carly's are both very, very good options. Yeah, but moving into uh, the corners, uh, we've got two with uh, notes on them. Uh, first, we have Ennis Rakestraw. So three tackles and a pass breakup so far. 71.5 BFF grade, 79.3 tackling, and 72 grade in coverage. Um, he is good at covering players and not just grass, which is something that is much more common than you would think uh, for zone cover corners um, when they they kind of just hang out in their, their space as opposed to really tracking where the players are going, just kind of falling asleep at the wheel defensively. But he does a good job at not doing that. The other one I think is more interesting because I think that it's a weakness that K-State can exploit. exploit. Uh, Chris Abrams drain, uh, number 14. Uh, he's got four tackles and two pass breakups, 62.9 on PFF, 61.8 uh, in coverage. Uh, he's somebody that I think that K-State could potentially throw out a lot 
uh, in this game because uh, I think he's definitely the weaker of the two corners uh, just from watching uh, the game. There were multiple instances where it seemed like he was a little slow to break uh, on a route and was maybe having a bit of trouble identifying what he was seeing. Uh, and that was impeding his coverage abilities. So if I were K-State, I would be finding ways to isolate this guy and put him in a place where he has to make a decision. Um, I I would be throwing at Abrams Drain more often than not if I'm the cats and I want to get the pass game going. Uh, Rakestraw, you can probably still throw against some, but it's just going to be a bit of a taller task. Uh, might as well take the path of least resistance uh, yeah. to a certain degree, at least, because you know you don't want to become too predictable. Um, then, of course, there's uh, Jamarian Wayne. He's in the rotation as a freshman, but we have less data on him, I suppose. Uh, so not going to talk about him really. But Abram Strain, I think he's the key uh, for uh, the K-State receivers. If the K-State receivers want to have a good day, it's probably through Abram Strain uh, on Mizzou's defense. Then again, we also thought that Bernard Converse might be a weak link at Oklahoma State last year for a while. So. But you know what? Honestly, the first games say that there would be the first three games made. Yeah, I I was about to make that. I I was about to make that disclaimer that they really didn't look good those first three games at all, and then they ended up being uh, one of the best teams in the conference. So you never really know. (laughs) Yeah. So they, it could happen to anybody. Is where I'll leave it at with that. Yeah. So. Let's go in with the positional breakdowns going in. With all of that said on the defense, they're not impossible to break because Louisiana Tech did have a few big plays off of them and a few opportunities for big plays. For example, there was a slot that was taken to the house. I believe Abrams Drain was in coverage there. Uh, I think it was actually a slant route that was both Abrams Drain's and Carly's responsibility. It was one of the safeties. But it's taken in the house because they caught kind of got caught napping a little bit on play action. So play action over the middle, but not the true middle, more like the hashes. That'll probably work pretty well. And I imagine Colin Klein will exploit that. But outside of that, let's get into the stories to watch going into this game. And the first one isn't a question. It is a statement. This is a battle between new two new coordinators to their team. It's new offensive coordinator Colin Klein against new defensive coordinator Blake Baker. And that's going to be a fascinating matchup for me to watch. Like, even if it's not interesting to anyone else, I think it's going to be interesting. (laughs) I think it's going to be fun. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, Colin Klein, uh, he's going to be forced to flex his muscles a little bit, I think, in this match. uh, Just because. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Because Blake Baker played. I think it was 2009 to 2013. He played at Tulane. Yeah, they would be about the same age then, yeah. Because yeah, Klein was uh, 2009 to 12, I believe, or 2008 to 12, I think. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, it'll be an interesting battle to watch uh, between those two guys. I think Klein's going to be more creative in this game. If this game goes similar to the previous one, then I'm willing to start raising alarm bells about the offense. But I'm not going to let one game really affect my opinion. We'll see a lot more, I think, uh, from this game in terms of what to expect from the offense for the rest of the year and what to expect from Colin Klein. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to watching this battle of coordinators. 
All right. Yeah. Sorry about that. Uh, they decided at 1030 at night on a Tuesday was the greatest time to do a fire drill at my apartment. There's no better explanation I can give. I can only hope that I edited it well enough to where you don't get any of the fire alarm. <laughs> yeah. 1030 at night. That's the best time to have a fire drill. But anyway, you have you know, the next story. to yeah. watch. I'm glad that you had a good time with your fire drillies. Mm-hmm. Does Adrian Martinez let it fly this game? Um, I think he does more than he did against South Dakota. I think that he eclipses like 175 at least passing the ball. But I think this is probably another game where we're going to lean on running a little bit because we were just, we were just so successful with the last game. And I think that this is going to be yet another. I think we see a lot, a lot more intermediate stuff. With Adrian, a lot of stuff uh, out to the numbers, uh, probably uh, trying to stay away from Hopper, but um, letting it fly. I mean, I don't think he's going to throw for four hundred or anything, but I mean, he'll. I think he'll throw it more and be a bit more aggressive and decisive than he was against South Dakota. But uh, I mean, we shall see. Yeah, that's kind of my thoughts as well. I think that we probably get a few more deep shots than one this game. But I don't see it turning into an air raid game. So the next question is, does MU's run defense take a step forward or a step backwards from last year facing Power 5 competition? And I have to say it probably takes a step forward because if it takes a step backwards, they're getting even worse than one of the worst run defenses in the country. That being said, I don't think they're going to be amazing against K-State. I think the offensive line is just better. Yeah, I think that's a fair statement to make um their their run defense will probably be better but like you said it's kind of a by default sort of thing where it's like some years their teams just can't get worse so yeah they improve but what else were they supposed to do so i think that i think that's a fair take there but you know i i also kind of agreed that it may not matter as much against this k-state running attack especially if they can get Deuce and DJ Giddens going because DJ was really starting to get it going by the end of the week. If they can have that kind of thunder and lightning punch, maybe really difficult for Mizzou to stop both of those guys. Um, but moving on to another story to watch, uh, is it going to be Mizzou's defense versus the world uh, in this game? Probably. And I, yeah, I, I, I think that that's the objective truth almost. I I don't love Mizzou's offense um, at all. I uh, there's intriguing pieces there, but to me, it's just, it's something that it, it needs more time in the oven. The defense, I think, could be really intriguing, but at the end of the day, we're basing a lot of it off of Louisiana Tech and a game that Louisiana Tech admittedly did not really play very well in which some of that at least was partially due to Missouri's defense, but some of it was also self-inflicted mistakes and errors. And we're going to really get a good gauge on if they're actually good, I think, in this game. And even if they are good, I still think it's more than a winnable game for K-State. Yeah. But I, I I do think that if Mizzou wants a path to victory, it's going to come from the defense. Like They're going to have to have a defensive score or at least a defensive setup of a really short field of some kind. Uh, but yeah, the Mizzou is going to be riding the coattails of their defense in this game. Yeah. Because that, if I'm remembering correctly, I know one 
The score of the Louisiana Tech game was 21 to 10 going into halftime. One of those was a short field. One of those was a pick six and one was a normal drive. So realistically, the MU offense put up 14 points against Louisiana Tech in the first half. And then they ran away with it in the second half. But yeah, I really do think it's probably going to be MU's defense versus the world. But in terms of what K-State has to do, can K-State's secondary contain the athletes MU has at receiver? Notice I don't say stop, I say contain. Because they're going to get theirs. It doesn't matter how how bad the play calling is, because I don't think that Drinkwitz or his staff are particularly great offensive play callers. The athletes are going to get some. Luther Burden is going to get his if the ball gets into his hands. Um, uh, Lovett's going to get the ball, going to get yards if he gets the ball into his hands. It's going to be a struggle for our secondary, not a struggle, but it's going to be a battle to watch all day because these are some of the most talented receiving weapons that we'll see all year. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Um, a lot of athletes across the board, it is going to play into K-State's favor that there's a lot of veterans on K-State side and it's a younger group on Missouri side. So that is going to be useful for K-State. Uh, uh, but then again, he's still, I mean, Luther Burden, despite being a true freshman, it's only going to be a second game ever. He's still Luther Burden and he's an incredible athlete and he will probably get one incredible play at least. Um, I don't anticipate him being unstoppable all game uh, just because I, I don't think he's there yet. I think he could be by the end of the year, but he, he's got development to do before he's really ready, I think. Um, but it, it, I think contain is a good word there. I think that's good. That's sharp word choice. Um, we can move on to uh, another story to watch. Can Drinkwoods keep himself from doing or saying something stupid between the recording of the game or between this recording and the game. Uh, because yeah. that takes us on a throwback to uh, when he said, I don't see us punting the first three weeks. And they punted four times, allegedly, last week. Yeah, it, they, um, they definitely punted against Louisiana Tech. I'm not sure if it was four times, but they punted. Yeah. Um, I tentatively think that he can muzzle himself enough to not say anything completely outlandish. Like there might be some like off the cuff stuff where like you can maybe interpret it as like a like slight of some sort, but it's not going to be like headline grabbing stuff. I don't think uh, I guess I, I think he's probably got insults saved up for like if he wins in my mind, he's such a dork. He probably has like a joke book like well, that. He like, just like does. writes down key state insults for his post game press card, press conference, God, which like he won't need to use them because he's not going to win. But he um. Yeah, I, I, I think that he can contain himself, probably. There's not that long between uh, the game and, and then I think he's probably already had his presser this week, I imagine. Drinkwitz will find a way. You think so? Yeah. I tweet something on the way there. Oh, no, he'll tweet something stupid. No, he will. That, that would be funny. And you know, honestly, I'd allow it. I'm totally fine with Drinkwitz saying something because it just makes it sweeter when we win. So... So now we can talk about the projected offensive and defensive MVPs. I'll go first for offensive MVP. You go first for defensive. My offensive MVP is going to be Deuce Vaughn because I think that this is going to be a game where even if the running game isn't necessarily working, 
I feel like just the threat of Deuce Vaughn, they're going to put Tyron Hopper on him, which means that that's going to open up the rest of the field because I don't trust anyone else on that defense to cover Deuce Vaughn. And the alternative is having them get dusted by Deuce in the passing game. Because I think that this is going to be a big week for Deuce receiving. So I think Deuce is going to be my offensive MVP. Uh, I've got Adrian again. I picked him last week and he obviously wasn't the MVP. But I I, I see him having a really nice rushing day uh, against Missouri. Because uh, if if which I suppose that's kind of along the same lines of why you chose Deuce Vaughn for your offensive MVP, where uh, hoppers might be shadowing him for most of the game. Uh, then all, so then that opens things up for Adrian. Um, so I'm, I'm saying Adrian for now. And if it's not this week, then I'm just going to keep picking Adrian until it is him because I, I, it, he has to at some point this year. Eventually. So eventually he will be the offensive MVP. So eventually I can say I'm right. It might take like seven weeks, but we'll see. Accuracy by volume of fire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just keep throwing it out there more, more and more. And eventually it'll be right. Yeah. Who's your defensive MVP? I've got Kobe Savage this week. Um, I had Daniel Green last week and he had like the one like awesome hit and then didn't really do anything else. I didn't need to. Um, Kobe Savage. He was flying all over the field last week. He looked like a man possessed out there on the field. He was a lot of fun to watch. Uh, he had some big hits himself. I think he's going to come up clutch in this game. I think you have like a big pass breakup or like a pick or something in this game. Uh, and I, I I could see this kind of being like a, his like breakout game almost in a way where like he really gets on the radar of a lot of K-State fans. Because I think outside of the... Uh, uh, people that would listen to this show or to Bosco's boys or something like that. I think that people in the general case, a fan base probably still don't know who Kobe Savage is at this point. And uh, I, I could see him making some big plays uh, this weekend and really establishing much establishing himself as a key piece on this defense going forward, which I think he will be. Yeah. That's a reasonable pick. I ended up picking Julius Brent's, because I think at any time that they have an isolated receiver, that's probably who they're going to look to attack deep. And I think Julius Brents takes them. And I don't think any of these receivers are technically refined enough to beat Julius Brents. So I really think that Brents acts as a true deep ball eraser, which really limits this offense that's already really limited. So I, my pick is Julius Brents. And now we can get into score projections. This is probably the most that you and I have differed on score since we've done the show. We have the same result, different score. I think that this is going to be a race to 20 because I think MU's offense is not good. I think their defense is going to be really good. So I think that this is going to be a race to 20. I think it's a race that K-State wins, though. So I have the score being 21 to 17 in favor of K-State. I've got the Cats as well by a larger margin, although I think it's going to be one of those margins that looks better on the schedule than it was in the game. I think that this is a game that K-State leads the whole way, but it stays fairly close most of the time, and they end up pulling away late. So I've got the Cats 35 uh, to 20 over Mizzou. 
and this one with a with a, a late uh extension of the the gap um but we'll see we will indeed see so yeah that has been your pregame scouting report for the upcoming cat fight between your Kansas State Wildcats and the Missouri Tigers. And this has been the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to follow or contact the show, we are at Aggieville A Cats on Twitter. That's capital A, capital A, and capital C in cats. If you want to email us, we're AggievilleAlleyCats at gmail.com. If you want to follow us on a more personal note, I am at ACEdward00. I am at Connor Balthazor, capital C, capital B. And if you want to support the show in a financial sense, please be sure to check out the official Aggieville Alley Cats merch store where you can find such designs as Doomtang Clan, Play Sandstorm Cowards, and Neon Alley Cats. And please be sure to use the discount code KOFFACATS, that's K-O-F-F-A-C-A-T-S, at checkout to get $5 off of your purchase so you can feel even better when you rock that really awesome design. But with all that said... Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast. We're come rain, shine, or anything in between. We're here to deliver to you the Kansas State sporting news that you so love. Stay safe, Alley Cats. <laughs>